I invite you to open your copies of the scripture to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. The theme of this weekend is the transforming power of the gospel. I've been given an assignment to address the need for transformation. I've been given given this text of Romans chapter 12 verse 2. As you're finding Romans 12, 2 in your Bibles, let me relate to you a bit of a personal story. A bit of my personal experience with this passage and with these verses. As a youngster, as a young man, this verse, these verses were drilled into my consciousness. They were drilled there, they were placed there through Bible memory, through teaching, through preaching. It was often referenced in sermons. And as I began to grow through adolescence and into youth, this verse often seemed to me to be used as a bit of a tool, a bit of a sledgehammer perhaps, to beat us into conformity to a set of rules and regulations of the church. And as a result of my own rebellion, and probably also as a result, at least partly, of some misuse and some misinterpretation of this passage, I came to dread these verses. For me, these verses came to represent something that was oppressive, something that was coercive. I attempted to comply with the behavior, the expectations that were laid out for me in the context of the command to not be conformed to the world. And I think I probably did a pretty good job, at least with the outside stuff. In some ways, I was perhaps appeared to be, at least, kind of a a model Mennonite. I was a preacher's kid. I knew what was expected. And I didn't want to... to, uh, I didn't want to do things that would cause me to look bad. So on the outside, I, I think I did a pretty good job. But to people, the people that were close to me, the people that knew me best, knew that that isn't who I was on the inside. I was often proud and arrogant, sometimes hurtful in my conversation, in my speech. I often struggled with an inability, an inability to put to death the sinful desires in my heart the sinful thoughts that were inconsistent with how I looked and behaved on the outside. Now some years later, the light started to come on for me. And this happened as I was reading Colossians chapter 2, while the preacher was preaching from Colossians chapter 3. I know you're not supposed to do that. But that's when the Spirit of God got a hold of me. Colossians chapter 2 talks about external controls. The external controls of don't do this and don't do that. Don't touch this and don't touch that. And it says that those things are actually a worldly way of exercising control, a worldly way of attempting to change behavior. And then Colossians chapter 3 talks about a change of mind, a change that happens in the inside, of being renewed in mind towards Christ, of putting off the old desires, and putting on 
Christ, being made new in the knowledge of God. And so I begin to see that genuine change happens not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And then I begin to see what I was missing all along in Romans 12 too. The antidote to conformity to the world was not more control or more regulation, but rather transformation flowing out of a changed mind through full surrender to God. The good news of the gospel of grace began to be very precious to me. And I realized my total inability, total inability to change myself, to do this for myself. I began to long for and seek after a more intimate knowledge of God. And this study of theology, the knowledge of God, totally changed my perspective and my outlook on Romans 12, 1 and 2. And now Romans 12, 1 and 2, these verses are sweet and precious to me. Now maybe none of the rest of you dreaded or dread these verses like I did. Maybe none of the rest of you were as rebellious as I was. But today, by God's grace, I desire to unpack this verse and its context so that you too will come to appreciate, to delight in this precious text of Scripture. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. My task, as I understand it, is to demonstrate the need for transformation. So in order to do that, I would like to ask this text five questions. Four W's and an H. The what, the who, the why, the when, and the how. Four W's and an H. So first, what is transformation? Secondly, who needs transformation? Third, why do we need transformation? Fourth, when do we need transformation? And fifth, how do we experience transformation? Now the last question of how, how do we experience transformation, that really gets into the next sermon. So I won't spend too much time there now. The first question, what is transformation, is more a matter of definition, definition of terms. So that shouldn't take too long either. But where we want to spend the most time is in the middle three questions. Who needs transformation and why? And when do we need it? So first, what is transformation? Well, before we can ever hope to understand our need of something, we ought first to understand what it is that we're talking about. So what is this transformation? What does it mean to be transformed? Well, quite simply, 
It means to be changed. To be changed. But not just any old change. Transformation describes complete and radical change. It's not just a minor change to the surface of something. It's not just a, a minor change to the shape of something. It's rather a change of substance. Change from one thing into something else. The Greek word that's used here is used four times in the New Testament. It is used twice in the Gospels where it talks about the transfiguration of Jesus. And it's used once here in Romans 12 and once in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And this word is basically the root word from which we get our word metamorphosis. We know how metamorphosis works in the life of a caterpillar. The caterpillar goes into a cocoon and sometime later out comes a beautiful butterfly. Change. Substantive change. Change from caterpillar to butterfly. Not just a a surface change, but a change of substance. As I mentioned, it was, it, this word is also translated transfigured in Matthew 17, where it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. We see that what happened here to Jesus was he was changed. Jesus' appearance is changed. Even his clothes appear to be something entirely different. A different substance. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever seen clothes that were white as light. And as I look here today, I don't see that kind of clothing. This was a change of substance. Jesus was transformed. He was transfigured. He was changed. In the spiritual realm that Romans 12, 2 deals with, we are to be changed in substance as well. Earlier in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul talks about this change as a change from being dead to being alive. Now that's a change, isn't it? From something that is dead and has no life, no ability to move, to act, to living, to life. It's a big change. It's a change of substance. New life. Something that didn't exist before, now it does. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is far more than reformation. Reformation wants to reshape that which already exists. This is more than that. This is also more than revival. Revival seeks to resuscitate or bring new life back to that which is dying. This is more than that. This is a change of substance, this creation of something new and different. So what is transformation? Transformation is a change of substance, the creation of something new. 
But who needs this transformation? Now that we know what transformation is, we ask the question, who needs it? And the Apostle Paul seems to think that somebody needs to be transformed. He is writing this verse with a command to be transformed. He clearly and emphatically commands this. This is not an optional take it or leave it kind of thing. You must be transformed. And so who does Paul think needs this transformation? Who is Paul writing to in these verses? To get the answer to that, we need to go back to the first chapter of the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul gives us an introductory sentence. And in this introductory sentence, Paul writes this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ, to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a long sentence. And when we come up for air, we see that the Apostle Paul was issuing this call in Romans 12, 2. He was issuing this call to the obedience of faith among all the nations, among all the people groups of the world. And that specifically included the Christians, the saints at Rome. In other words, what he was writing here to the Romans was consistent with what he was called to proclaim throughout the world, to all Christians everywhere, to all people groups. But he specifically refers to the people at Rome who were loved by God and called by God as his special people. It's another way to to say saints, those who are set apart for God. A little later in verse 15 of chapter 1, he writes that he is eager to preach the gospel to these saints. And in verse 16 he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. Now we often think, we often tend to think that the gospel is for lost people. And it is. But do you ever think that the gospel is for saved people too? Yes, we need the power of the gospel for our initial salvation. But we continue to need the power of the gospel in our daily lives as children of God. We'll get to that a little later when we talk about the need for transformation. So in this context, it should be clear to us that people everywhere need the transforming power of the gospel. But most specifically, those who are called out by God to be His saints, they are the ones who must be transformed. They are the ones that the Apostle Paul was writing to here. And just in case it isn't clear to you, all the nations, all the people groups, that includes us. 
That includes people in the United States of America. It includes people in the cultural group that we call Mennonites. This means you. So who needs transformation? I need transformation. You need transformation. We all need transformation. Well, why do we need it then? Why would we need this transformation? Why would we need to be changed into something that we aren't already? Now, most of us can understand why a person who is not a follower of Christ needs transformation. We look at them and we say, yes, they need to be changed. They need the new life that is found in Christ. Those who are spiritually dead need to be made alive. But why do those of us who are already Christians need transformation? As Mennonites, we often tend to think that we kind of have this whole Christianity thing figured out. Why in the world would we need to be changed into something else? What's wrong with us anyway? As we turn to the text, it is made very clear what our problem is. The reason we must be transformed is because we are being conformed to this world. The Apostle Paul says, stop being conformed to the world. The antidote to conformity to the world is to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. But you say, we don't have this problem, do we? We of all people, we who hold highly to nonconformity and separation from the world, that, that's, one of our dis- that's part of our distinctives as Anabaptists, as Mennonites, as conservative Mennonites. So surely we don't have this problem with being conformed to the world. Well, one of the things that we need to understand here is that the world that we are talking about here is not the physical planet on which we live. God has created that, and he called it very good. And it is still beautiful, although marred by the fall, it, is still, it still reflects some of the glory and goodness of God. God has created us so that we would live here. The physical world is not what this text is referring to. The word translated world here is often talked about in the scripture as the spirit of the age. In the Ephesians 2 passage, it talks about it as the course of the world or the way the world works. The motivations, the philosophies of the world are what is in view here. To be conformed to the world then is to be made to fit in to think like the world, to operate by worldly principles, to operate according to worldly philosophies. Jesus, in John chapter 17, prays for us, as well as his disciples, and he makes it very clear that we are not to seek to leave this world, this physical planet. We are to be in the world, but not of it. In other words, we live here, We go about our lives here on this earth. We interact with the people of this earth. But we don't live according to the predominant principles, the motivations, the philosophies of the world. 
what we're talking about is far more than just a different way of living. It's far more than just a different way of living by being distinct or doing things that are distinct from the world. Although we will do things that are different and distinct. That is not the primary definition. What we're talking about here is the kind of motives, the kind of philosophies that drive us, that control us, that dictate how we live. And I fear that many times we as conservative Mennonites have actually done the opposite of what Jesus calls us to in John 17. Our instincts have been to live separate from the world, to isolate ourselves from the world, from the people around us. But unfortunately, many times, we are still living according to worldly principles. In essence, we have been of the world in substance while not living in it. Now, whoa, you say, whoa, whoa, that's, that's, that's not right. That isn't true. Yes, we might be a bit isolationist in our tendencies, but don't accuse of, us of being of the world. We are actually living in very different ways from the world. Okay, well then let me ask you a question. What are you known for? By your neighbors, by the ones who look on, what are we known for? What are the things that make us stand out in our world? What do your neighbors point out as the significant difference between you and them? In many communities, the conservative Mennonites are known for their distinctive clothing. They're known for their large families and family values. Often they're known for successful businesses or maybe frugal ways. In many communities, Mennonites are known for their good cooking. Well, let me ask you another question then. How are these things different from what we know about Muslims or Jews or Mormons? I'm sure there are some nuances of difference. But the point is, you don't have to be a transformed child of God to wear distinctive clothes or to have a large family or a successful business or be frugal or know how to cook well. As I alluded in my introduction, many times we as Mennonites have become focused on the outward indicators of not being conformed to this world. And some of those are good and right. But my contention is that we are often altogether conformed to the world in very significant ways. Many have tried to accomplish transformation by external conformation to a set of rules and regulations. Do this, don't do that, don't wear that, don't go there. Colossians 2 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. These things are according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value 
in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Notice, the spirit of the world tries to work this way. The world systems and philosophies tell us that in order to change behavior, we must regulate externals. They have no other way. But nobody is ever going to be transformed by obeying a code of behavior. By depending on these external manipulations, we are actually revealing our conformity to the world. People might get reformed, but they're not going to be transformed. Now, please do not misunderstand me. The church must speak to what is proper behavior and what is proper conduct and what is proper dress. But the church must never depend on those things for transformation. Now, some of us have perhaps rejected the external regulation. But what have we replaced it with? In some of our circles, it has been replaced by an emphasis for correct doctrine, for theological precision. As long as you believe the right set of facts, then everything will be okay. And I would ask, how's that working for us? Is that really where it is? Once again, what we have is a worldly way of thinking. What about our family values? What about our frugality and successful businesses? What did Jesus have to say about that? Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I don't think I need to comment much further, except to say that far too many of us are stressing out, trying to provide for our children so that they have a better life than what we had. When what Jesus says is important is following him, whatever the cost. Even if that means leaving houses, lands, father, mother, children. But far too many of us, for far too many of us, our children, our family, our business have become more important than what God wants. Again, please understand, children and family are important, but the things of God are more important. 
And so we have become worldly in our thinking, even in the good things that God has given us. And we have valued the gift more than the giver. So why do we need transformation? We need transformation because we are being conformed to this world. Well, when do we need this transformation? The verbs in this text indicate a continual action. A continual action. This isn't something that we just do once and then we're done. This transformation is an ongoing work. It is a continual work. We need it right now. We will continue to need it as long as we live in this world. As long as we are being conformed or made to fit in to this world system. The need is great. This isn't just for unbelievers. It is for us, for all of us. In every stage of life, we must be transformed. We cannot afford to keep on pursuing the American dream or any other dream that doesn't involve gospel-powered transformation. Far too much has already been lost. Far too many souls already conform to the world. And we will continue to need this transformation as long as we live in this world and in this body of flesh. The need is great. We need transformation now, and we need it continuing into the future, beginning today. Well, how do we experience transformation? How are we going to do this? How do we accomplish transformation? As I've already said, this is topic for the next sermon, but I don't want to leave you entirely waiting. I've already alluded to some of the ways that transformation won't happen. Transformation won't happen through more regulation. Transformation won't happen through doctrinal precision. Or, the, the flip side of that, accommodation to our culture. Some people attempt transformation that way. If we can only be relevant no, it will not happen that way. And furthermore, transformation won't happen through a search for a more emotional or more passionate worship experience, which is another way, means that people tend to use. How transformation does happen is through surrender. Surrender to God, resulting in repentance and a changed mind. Notice verse 1 of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This transformation that he's talking about here is not something that we can do. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, it is spoken of as something that happens to us, that is done to us. It's not something that's possible for us to do. This is something that is done to us and through us by the power and mercy of God. 
And so there is no formula that we can follow. There is no 12-step plan or 3-step plan to transformation. But in order to be transformed, we must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just believe it, but obey it. Romans 10 talks about how we are to be saved. In verses 9 through 11, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But then if we skip down to verse 16 of Romans 10, he says that they have not all obeyed the gospel. So this is a matter of obedience. We must surrender to King Jesus. He is the Lord. We are his subjects. We are his slaves. He is the master. And verse 1 of chapter 12 puts this in the context of sacrifice. It's as if we were to voluntarily place ourselves on the sacrificial altar and to say with Job in Job 13, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Unconditional surrender. No strings attached. We give him everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we might ever hope to be. Our family, our fortune, our dreams, our ambitions, our reputation, even our physical bodies. We give it all in full surrender. But even that is not possible without the drawing, working power of God in our lives. We must depend on Him to even get on the altar. We must depend on Him every day to make that sacrifice of obedience and faith. This only happens as we obey the gospel. One of the first commands that Jesus issued when he was here on earth was repent and believe. To repent is to change our mind. It's a similar thing to what we read here in Romans 12, this renewal of our minds, this mind being made new. As it says in Philippians 2, we have the mind of Christ. And now we seek first the kingdom of God instead of our own kingdom. But the power to repent, the power to obey the gospel is given us by God. In John 6, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Transformation will not happen without unconditional surrender and repentance. A change of mind empowered by God himself. And the results of this will be that we will do the right things. We will believe the right things. We will demonstrate to a watching world what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. But there are no shortcuts. This is a lifelong process. And you can't do this from the outside in. It must be the power of God working from the inside out. In conclusion, many of our young people today seem to be unsure about what real Christianity is or whether they even want to be a part of it. And many of our young parents and middle-aged people are preoccupied with career, with family, with recreation. And only secondarily, 
committed to serving King Jesus. Far too many of our older people are content with kicking back in retirement and living a life of ease instead of running the last few laps of the Christian race with all the stops pulled out. Many people today are crying for revival in our churches. They want to see fervent worship with a passionate emotional response. They want to see active Christian service. Many today are calling for a recovery of family values and family togetherness. Some are calling for more strict reformation of dress and behavior or limitations on technology and media. Some of us are looking for the perfect theological position that is precisely defendable or practical in our modern world. If we can just get all our doctrinal ducks in a row, then everything will be okay. Yes, we need revival of emotion and desire. And yes, we need reformation of conduct. And yes, we want strong family units. And we must be concerned with theological precision. But more than all of that, we need transformation. We must have transformation. Transformation of individuals. Transformation of families. Transformation of churches and even transformation of our alliance. And this transformation must be ongoing. The moment we stop being transformed into new creations in Christ, we begin to be conformed to this world. That is the default setting. And the moment that we give up and stand by the sidelines is the moment where we begin to be conformed to the world. Without transformation, all of the emotional response, all of the changed behavior, the family values, the theological precision, all of this without transformation is nothing more than an empty shell of legalism and conformity to a worldly way of outside-in control. And it has no eternal value in restraining the flesh, in restraining sinful indulgence or creating new life but with a continual inside out transformation through the power and grace of the gospel we will begin to see fervent worship we will begin to see passionate service for Christ family will take its proper place on the altar of sacrifice behavior and dress will no longer take their cues from the world Theological precision will flow out of a rich and sustained communion in the Word of God. This transformation will not happen without unconditional surrender to God and complete trust in the work of Jesus Christ to purchase our redemption through His sacrificial death and through the power of His resurrection. This transformation will not happen until the Holy Spirit moves in our minds and our hearts to unveil the truth of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this transformation will not happen until our minds are changed about our own sin, about our own selfish ambition, 
And this transformation will not happen until we obey the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. So who needs transformation? I do. You do. We all do. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit and move, move among us. Open our minds to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reveal to us our terrible sin and our rebellion. Help us to see ourselves as God sees us, as painful as that is. Oh God, empower us to complete and unconditional surrender. Renew our minds. Change the way we think by the truth of your word. Transform our lives from the inside out, we pray. Make us into new creations that are modeled after your son, Jesus. And make of us a marvelous masterpiece of your glory. Help us to fulfill your good and acceptable and perfect will. May we be a reflection of your glory to a watching world. O the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of you, O God. How unsearchable are your judgments. How mysterious your ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been your counselor? Or who has ever given you anything worthy to be repaid? For from you, O God, and through you, O God, all things exist and continue to have their existence. To you, O God, be all the glory and the overwhelming dominion and power forever and ever. Amen. Good evening, and thank you, Wendell, for those songs. Happens to be two of my favorite hymns, especially Be Thou My Vision. It's been a favorite of mine for a long time, and it speaks very directly uh, to the subject tonight. Good commentary on 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I would invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians the third chapter, and I'll be reading a number of verses from chapter 3 and chapter 4, uh, and after the scripture is read, I'd like to ask uh, Brother David Burkholder to lead us in prayer, if you would, as we go forward uh, for the evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart, 
But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's a verse in Zechariah 4, verse, Zechariah 4, verse 6, that says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And I think that verse uh, could kind of be used as maybe a banner over everything that we're going to talk about tonight. We could have this big banner maybe draped up over the back here to remind us, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And that is how we will find that transformation happens. And tonight I want to give some practical, some practical instruction, some things that we can do as a part of our transformation. But in all of that, we must constantly remember that it is not our work and it is not done by our power. It is not because we are so good. It is not because we are so able or so smart. It is because God is great and God is spirit as it says in our text that we just read. This issue of transformation and how it happens, this is a gospel issue. The gospel by its very nature is offensive to our natural desires. It is offensive to our natural way of thinking and doing. The gospel says that we are desperately wicked that all of our parts are corrupted and that we are unable and unwilling to keep the law and to save ourselves. The gospel also says that Jesus came to fulfill the law perfectly and to offer redemption, to accomplish redemption through his death on the cross and by the power of his resurrection to certify that that death indeed is what it takes. And to offer us that if we would only surrender to him and trust him. And that trust, by the way, includes obedience. For if you do not obey, then you're not really trusting. But if we would trust him, then he would redeem us and restore us. He would transform us. And he would change us. Transform us means to change us, as we talked about this morning. But this is very hard for us to do. Very hard for us to accept. Actually, Jesus says it's impossible. Jesus said, remember what I read this morning? 
the disciples ask, well, how can any person be saved? And Jesus, I can just imagine kind of a, a hint of a grin on his face, and he says, yeah, how can anybody be saved? But with God, all things are possible. By ourselves, impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so because this is very hard for us to do, impossible actually, in ourselves, in our own strength, in our own power, we devise all kinds of systems. We devise all kinds of ways and means and mechanisms by which we might attempt to become righteous, transformed, sanctified, whatever word you want to use. And sometimes the religious imposter looks on the outside much like a genuine child of God might. Because we can do the things on the outside. That is something we can do something about. What we cannot do is the change that must happen on the inside. Now, as we have already said many times, a change on the inside does result in a change on the outside. But just because there's a change on the outside does not certify that there is a change on the inside. This is the matter of transformation. It's the matter of the, the gospel power at work within us. And we want to look this, this evening especially at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, which is the fourth place that we find in the New Testament where this word transformed is used. The first two cases are in the Gospels, where it talks about Jesus being transfigured, and there the word is translated transfigured. This morning we looked at Romans 12, verse 2, which talks about being transformed by the renewal of our mind. And here we come to an explanation of how this transformation happens. And I want us to notice a few things that we find here in verse 18. And we'll use the other verses around this verse as kind of commentary on it. They help us to understand it, to unpack it. The first thing that we notice in verse 18 is that transformation is for all of us. We all, with unveiled face. But first we see, in the verse prior, that only through Christ can we even have an unveiled face. It's only when Christ removes the veil that we can even see and savor the glory and goodness of God. Without that, without that unveiling by Christ, only through Christ, it says, it is taken away. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Only then can we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of God. So it is for all of us, all of us who have unveiled faces, that is, all of us who can see with spiritual eyes, we are the ones who are being transformed. This isn't just for a select few Christians. This isn't just for, for the pastor or the preacher or the Sunday school teacher. This isn't just for the mature Christians, those who have lived a long life with Christ. No, this transformation is something that all who have turned to the Lord must and can be involved in. Nobody else can be transformed for you. Nobody else can do this in place of you. 
If you have turned to the Lord, then you are one of the all of us. Secondly, and we notice this at the end of verse 18. We're going from the beginning of the verse to the end of the verse, the bookends of this verse. Secondly, we notice that transformation isn't something you can do. It says, the last part of this verse, for this, talking about this transformation from glory to glory, this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. We see that this transforming work is from the Lord. He is the one who unveils so that we can be transformed. He is the one who does the work of transformation in our hearts. And the reason that it is only from Him is because He is Spirit. We are not. But we do have a spiritual part to us. We do have a heart that must be transformed. And the only way that can happen is through a spiritual action. And so the Lord who is spirit does the work of the spirit in transforming our hearts spiritually. This is very important to our understanding. For as long as we are struggling to do this work of transformation in our own power, or even with the assistance of God's power, as long as it is our work, and we are trying to accomplish it, in whatever measure by our own strength, we will be forever frustrated. We will be eventually deceived, and we will ultimately fail. I found a, an article written by J.R. Miller in 1888 that I found very helpful, and I think I will quote a bit of it here. I don't think I can write it any better or say it any better. He says, But how may we grow into the Christ-likeness of Christ? Not merely by our own strugglings and strivings. We know what we want to be, but when we try to lift our own lives up to the beauty that we see and admire in Christ, we find ourselves weighted down. We cannot make ourselves Christ-like by any efforts of our own. Nothing less than a divine power is sufficient to produce this transformation in our human nature. He goes on to say, Beholding, we are changed. The verb is passive. We do not produce the change. The marble can never carve itself into the lovely figure that floats in the artist's mind. The transformation must be wrought with patience by the sculptor's own hands. We cannot change ourselves into the image of Christ's glory. Rather, we are changed. The work is wrought in us by the divine spirit. We simply look upon the image of the Christ, and its blessed light streams in upon us and prints its own radiant glory upon our hearts. So we see that one of the primary things that we must understand about spiritual transformation, about new birth, about regeneration, is that this isn't something we can do or make happen. It's not something we can control. And ultimately, the scriptures tell us that we can't even choose for it to happen by ourselves. God must work by His Spirit. God must invite 
He must call. He must draw. John 6, I read this morning, John 6, 44, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God must act, and he must act first. Now, it feels to us like we choose. It feels to us like we make a choice, a decision to follow Christ. But that decision, as real as it is, is predicated upon God's choosing first. Upon God's drawing, upon God's invitation, upon the work of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts. Even the repentance that I was talking about this morning happens only as a result of God's granting it to us. 2 Timothy 2 talks about this in terms of the pastor, the teacher. He says he needs to be the Lord's bondservant, not quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So we see the progression here. God grants repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and then they come to their senses, and they say, oh, I was wrong. And they escape from the snare of the devil. If this was something that we could do or make happen or even ultimately choose in the first place, then there would be reason for us to boast. But according to, second, to Ephesians 2 and many other passages, including John 3 and John 6, it becomes obvious to us that God works in us to bring about His will. God works in us to bring us to the place where we choose to serve Him. Now this is a hard pill for most of us to swallow. It's not something that goes down easy. Because we want to believe in our flesh that we can somehow contribute to this matter of our salvation. That there is something we have to add, something of value. And we are reminded in the words of the prophet Isaiah that our righteousness, our goodness, and compared to what God has provided is, it's nothing but filthy rags. We don't have anything to add to our salvation. Jesus Christ is sufficient. But that doesn't mean that we don't participate. It doesn't mean that we don't actually do something. The gospel is not about just sitting back and watching God work and just sitting on our hands and not doing anything. No, that's not how God works. That's not how the gospel works. I found, or I... I heard this week, Brother Kenneth actually brought an analogy to my mind that I thought was very helpful. Maybe it will help us tonight, and I'll give him all the credit for it. It's the analogy of a sailboat. Now, I happen to know just a little bit about sailing. I happen to enjoy it, actually. And Kenneth brought this analogy to us the other evening at our small group leaders meeting. When we, were, when we were discussing the role of being spirit-led and the role of order and structure and discipline in our lives. And he said something like, like this. That sometimes we need to put the sail up. 
We still can't control the wind. We can't make the wind blow. But we can put the sail up. So that when the wind blows, it moves us. Now, that analogy is helpful, but only if we recognize one thing. Remember the banner over top? If we remember that God provides the sail and the sailboat, and God provides the strength to even put the sail up. But we still must put the sail up. Yes, Jesus tells us in John 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he describes the work of the Spirit in regeneration and new birth. He describes it like the wind. He says, you can see the effects of the wind. You can see when it's blowing. But you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. And so is the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. So is the work of transformation. It's like the wind. It's difficult for us, impossible for us, to control. That's God's business. But we can put the sail up. And as long as we recognize that putting the sail up is also a part of the work of God, is also a part of the power of God, then we'll be okay. From a human perspective, it does feel like we are doing something. When in ultimate reality, it is God working through us. And that's why we can't boil this down. We can't formulate this into a three-step plan, where if you do one, two, and three, then you'll be transformed. If we could do that, then we wouldn't need God. We wouldn't need the Spirit. We could manage Another thing that we need to note is that God chooses to work in different ways with different people. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to the work of transformation and sanctification. So I can't give you a formula for something that is the miraculous work of God. I can't do it. And I'm not going to apologize for not giving you a formula. But I can, hopefully, through the use of an explanation and exposition of Scripture give you some practical things that might be a means of setting the sail so that you can be more fully involved in the transformation that God wants in your life, that God is working in your life. You see, here's the beauty of it. The beauty of God's work in transformation is that the things that we do are actually the results of transformation. And they lead us into further transformation from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another. Let me see if I can explain this to you. As we shall see throughout this evening, the Word of God plays a central role in the transformation of, of our hearts, of our lives. The Word of God is, play, does play a key role. So, if we begin to study and meditate on the Word of God, well, wait a minute. If we begin to study and meditate on the Word of God, that is actually a result of God's work, of God's power in us already. So that we even have the desire or inclination to read. He has already worked in us. And we might think we're setting our sail, and we are. But notice this. Now, the beauty of it is that when we do such a thing, when we open our Bible and begin to read, God works even further, and he uses his word to further shape us and further mold us and further transform us into his image. 
The power is all of Him. And so it is with every means of God's grace to us. In Him we live and move and have our being. He is the prime mover. He is the sovereign Lord. The Lord of all the universe. And we do participate in our transformation. This isn't something, again, where we stand idly by and God acts without our, without our involvement. But even our involvement is transformative. Even our involvement is a part of the process of transformation. It is a result of the grace and power of God. The third thing we notice here in this text is that transformation happens when we behold the glory of God. And the later context describes this as in the face of Jesus Christ. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. So here we get to the practical considerations for how we can participate in this transformation. And again, let me say, this is not something we can cause. This is not something we can make happen. Well, what are some ways that we can set our sails, as it were, to make the most of the power of God at work within us? What are some ways that we can behold the glory of God? This verse, in the broader context, talks a lot about the glory of God. It talks a lot about the results of the glory of God. About beholding the glory of God, particularly in the face of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. But this is not an isolated reference in the Scripture. The Scripture is full of references to beholding the glory of God. Psalm 27, verse 4. The psalmist writes, One thing, just one thing, have I asked from the Lord? Now you know we, uh, we, we read the childhood stories about the genie in the bottle. And you rub the bottle and the genie pops out and says, I'll give you three wishes. The psalmist, he only had one. One. One overwhelming, overriding desire. One thing have I asked from the Lord. And that I shall seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why would he do that? To behold the glory, to behold the beauty or glory of the Lord. And to meditate in his temple. That was the psalmist's overwhelming overriding desire to behold the glory and beauty of God. John 1 talks a lot about light and glory. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born, get this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's how it happened. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 16, for from His fullness... 
we have all received grace upon grace. It's a marvelous thing, the glory of God. It's a powerful thing. Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 1 John 3, We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is, beholding the glory of our Savior. And we will be like him. Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. This is going to happen. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And then there's this question that comes. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. You see, we aren't much. We're like the grass of the field. And all God has to do is breathe on us. But the word of our God the God who has spoken it, the God who has revealed His glory, will stand forever. And so the message to Judah, to Jerusalem, to Zion is, go, on a, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now what is so significant about beholding? How does this work? Well, the Bible talks a lot about imitation. We become like that which we admire. We become like what we look at and what we spend time with and what we feed on. The old adage, you are what you eat, is not too far off. We become like the people we associate with. We can think of examples of this, both, both positively and negatively. You know, it's said that two people who love each other and who live together for a very long time start to look like each other, and they do. Even more serious than that, it's said that some people begin to look like their pets. Now, that's a natural uh, illustration or a natural example, but... When we behold the glory of God, when we look at Jesus, we become imitators of God. And God begins to change us into His image. He begins to restore that which was broken by the fall. Remember in Genesis what God said? Let us create man in our image. What a glorious, glorious position. But then there was the fall, there was sin that brought brokenness, that brought hurt and pain. And so the whole world is now groaning, and we bear but a scarred, broken image of God. But God is about the work of restoring us into His image, into the fullness of that. 
And when we feed on Him and admire Him, it does change us. So how do we behold the glory of God? How do we behold the glory of the Lord? Well, God says we can't see Him with our natural eyes. No man can see Him and live. So this is going to be more of a spiritual exercise. We can behold His glory in His Word. We've already talked about that. We can see who He is. We can see how great He is, how good He is, how just and righteous He is. In His Word, we behold His glory. We can behold His glory in nature. We can behold His glory as we pray and worship Him together with our brothers and sisters or alone in our closet. And so activities that you will want to do if you are going to be setting your sail in the wind of the Spirit is to spend a lot of time in the Word. Read Psalm 119. Read Psalm 19 if you want to see how important this is. The psalmist David delighted in the law of the Lord. The psalmist David wrote the longest chapter in our Bible about the delights and goodness and riches of the Word of God. That's Psalm 119. And Psalm 19 is a commentary on Psalm 119. Or maybe it's a prelude. I'm not sure which. But either way, it's important. If you're going to set your sail to be transformed, you will want to spend some time in nature to see the beauty and grandeur and vastness of a God who is a creator. You will want to spend time in prayer and worship, both by yourself and with the people of God who are, as we shall see later, to be faithful reflectors of the glory of God to us. But the Word of God in all of this is the primary interface. It is the primary interface where we come in contact with the glory of the Lord. In the Isaiah passage that we just read and in others, we are told that the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He has revealed Himself and His purposes through speech, through the spoken Word. Our God is a God that articulates He's a God who speaks. He's a God who writes. So we note in verse 8 of Isaiah 40 that this word of God will stand forever. Our God is a God who speaks. This word of God is central to our transformation. Romans 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. John 17, 17. Jesus says, prays to his Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Our God is a God who speaks and a God who writes. And this is the one of the reasons why Christians have always been interested in literacy. This is one of the reasons why Christians are so interested in making sure that the word of God is translated into the, the language of all the peoples of the world. It's why we seek to educate our children so that they can read and comprehend. It's why we're having a conference next weekend to address this very issue. 
we observe and behold the glory of God as we hear his voice through his word and as we observe the living person of Jesus Christ, the living word, in the pages of the written word. Jerry Bridges uh, wrote a paragraph that I thought was very helpful. Again, I cannot improve on it, so I will quote it for you. Beholding the Lord's glory in his word is more than observing his humanity in the Gospels. It is observing his character, his attributes, his will in every page of Scripture. And as we observe him, as we maintain this relationship with him through his word, we are transformed more and more into his likeness. We are enabled by the Holy Spirit to progressively manifest the graces of godly character. So it is this relationship with Christ expressed by beholding him in his word and in depending upon him in prayer that enables us to draw from him the power essential for a godly life. The Christian is not like an automobile with self-contained power source. Rather, he is like an electric motor that must constantly be connected to an outside current for its power. Our source of power is in the risen Christ and we stay connected to him by beholding him in his word, and depending on him in prayer. The word of God is the primary interface through which we behold the glory of God, a God who speaks, a God who writes. But we also behold the glory of God in nature. Who among us has not been awed by the beauty of God? that we find in his creation as displayed in the world around us. I have not done it for a couple of years now, but one of the things I really enjoy doing is going to the hills of West Virginia where it's really dark and laying down on a moonless night and looking at the stars. And the sky fairly glows with stars. And who among us, when we lie on our back on the ground looking up at a dark night sky full of stars, who among us somehow thinks more highly of ourselves? No, we realize that we are but a speck. We are but a speck of dust in this grand universe. How about when we see a beautiful sunset, like the one we saw last night, some of us? Don't we marvel at that? Don't we marvel at how a God that is big, a God that is powerful, so beautifully painted this for us to see? When we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, can we help but marvel at the incredible power and the intensity, power and intensity beyond human ability, that it must have taken to carve that chasm. In nature, we are confronted with parts of the attributes of God. In Romans chapter 1, it tells us that this is enough. This is enough to convict us. This is enough evidence to prove to us that there is a God. It is also part of the glory of God that we behold 
And so if you are going to be setting your sail for transformation, if you're interested in sanctification, perhaps you would do well to take a hike. Perhaps you would do well to even go jump in a lake from time to time to behold the glory of God. The third way we behold the glory of God, I've already alluded to this a couple times, is in community. The community of the bride of Christ. Let me read again 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. As we behold God, we become reflectors as well. Matter of fact, there's an alternate translation of 2 Corinthians 3.18 that some versions use that I think captures a bit of this. They talk about beholding as in a mirror or reflecting as a mirror. And so we reflect the glory of God to each other. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ, there it is again. The importance of the word. The word dwells in us richly. That only happens when you behold the glory of the Lord. But the word of Christ dwells in us richly, and because of that, then we admonish one another, we sing to each other, we speak to each other out of that word. Hebrews 10.25, Let us consider then how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. God has chosen us. He's chosen to use us as ministers of His glory. It's an amazing thing. To minister His glory to others. And so a very real part of beholding the glory of God is the life-on-life -life interaction that we have with the rest of the body of Christ. But notice, again, the Colossians passage tells us what the content of our sharing is supposed to be. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And out of that you are to speak and admonish and sing to each other. So once again, the word of God is in view as a part of what it means to behold the glory of God, even as we do so with our brothers and sisters. The fourth thing we notice from this passage is that transformation involves obedience. There's one little word in this verse that speaks volumes about obedience. And that word is the word Lord. For this comes from the Lord. Kyrios. A Greek word meaning slave master. This comes from the Lord. Because he is our Lord, this signifies that our relationship to him is one of slave. Slaves are obedient. If they're not obedient, they're not slaves very long. 
And we see this in the rest of Scripture as well. This matter of obedience is a part of our participation in the transformation. So if God tells us to put the sail up and we are disobedient and we don't put the sail up, whether that be the sail of reading the word of God, of beholding his glory in nature, of meeting together with our fellow believers, whatever that is, if God tells us to put the sail up and we are disobedient, what's going to happen? Well, the wind's going to come along, and I know how this works. The wind comes along and pushes against the side of the boat. But the side of the boat's only about this tall. So you don't move very far very fast. With the sail up, you can go places. You can experience freedom. But if we are not obedient, not much is going to happen. We will not sail in freedom and glory. This obedience to the Lord is in the form of actions. Actions that we take in faith. Faith that God knows what he's talking about. God knows the best way. Even when it might not feel right to us. That's the real acid test. Will we trust him enough? Do we have faith that he is right? Will we obey even when it does not feel right to us? Even when we think we have a better way? The Bible talks about sacrificing. It talks about denying the flesh. It talks about putting off and putting on certain behaviors. It talks about enduring suffering without retaliation. That's what surrender looks like. That's what obedience looks like in real life. It's the day-to-day decisions that indicate obedience. It's in the day-to-day decisions and actions that we surrender. That's why in Romans 1, 12, 1, it's called a living sacrifice. We don't just get up on the altar and he kills us and we're done. And we go to glory and it's peace and joy forevermore. No, we get up on the altar every day. And every day we die to self. And every day we live to Christ. And every day we choose to obey. And every day we are being more and more transformed from glory to glory. This living sacrifice requires actual obedient actions. Now, of course, this will look different in different people's lives. What we have tended to do often, and not just Mennonites, but other people too, what we have tended to do is to try to put this into a tidy formula, to put this obedience into a tidy box that looks the same for everybody. And we've said, okay, as long as you're doing this, then you must be okay. As long as you're doing this, then you have what it takes. But we all tend to sin in different areas. We're all tempted in different ways. We all have different predispositions. And so, what might be necessary for one of us actually becomes a hindrance for someone else. And that's why this doesn't work. Because not everyone struggles with the same issues, with the same sin. Once again, these obedient actions, they don't save us. They don't gain us any favor with God. And they must be done in the power of God. But these obedient actions are a part of the means of God's grace to us in our transformation. It's a part of the process. 
It's a part of the means of grace whereby we become more and more sanctified, more and more transformed, and we go from one degree of glory to another. And once again, we find that the Word of God is of central importance here in describing for us, in informing us what kinds of behaviors, what kinds of responses, what kind of attitudes are godly. And alternatively, what kind of actions, behaviors, and attitudes are ungodly. So once again, we must behold the glory of God in His Word in order to be obedient. Finally, we see that transformation is a process, not a crisis. Transformation is a process. It is not a crisis. It says, from one degree of glory to another. Again, I will quote J.R. Miller. He says, we have nothing to do but to keep our eyes fixed upon the beauty as the flowers hold up their faces toward the sun and the transformation is divinely wrought in us. It is not wrought instantaneously. At first, there are but dimmest glimmerings of the likeness of Christ. We cannot, in a single day, learn all the long, hard lessons of patience, meekness, unselfishness, humility, joy, and peace. Little by little, the change is wrought, and the beauty comes out as we continue to gaze upon Christ. Little by little, the glory flows into our lives from the radiant face of the Master and flows out again through our dull lives, transforming them. Even though but little seems to come from our yearnings and strugglings after Christ's likeness, God honors the yearning and the striving. And while we sit in the shadows of weariness, disheartened with our failures, He carries on the work within us. And with His own hands, produces the divine beauty in our souls. Yes, we struggle. Yes, we strive. Yes, we fail. But this is a race that is not run in a day. This race takes a lifetime. Furthermore, I can assure you that if this transformation is something that you desire. It's something you want. The very reason you want it and desire it is because God has put that into you. God has put that desire in your heart. God has worked it in. And he says in his word that he will continue the good work that he has started. Philippians 1 verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Just don't expect the whole road, road map before you start. That's not how he works. God usually only gives us turn-by-turn turn directions. And as we trust him in faith and obedience, then he shows us the next step. But we want the whole map. And so we sometimes get impatient. And we sometimes question him. Are you sure, God? Is this really the right way? But there's the test of faith, again, and obedience. Who are we going to trust? Who are we going to rely on? So in conclusion, whether it be by beholding the glory of God in nature, 
or by seeing the glory of God reflected in our brothers and sisters, or beholding the glory of God in the Word of God. And the result, the outcome of all of this is the renewal of our mind, as it says in Romans 12, verse 2. Or the putting on the mind of Christ, as it talks about in Colossians. Or setting our mind on things above, or some other similar language. And this involves a couple aspects, all requiring the supernatural work of God to empower us to think differently. This involves repentance. Repentance literally means to change your mind. As we've noted already, that's something that God grants to us. The changing of our mind from the focus on self and what we want to the focus on God and what He wants. This requires an actively thinking approach. Christianity is not for people who don't think. Christianity requires a new mind. Requires a mind that is fashioned after Christ. This requires understanding or seeing, at least in part, our sin, our selfishness, our rebellion. It requires repenting, confessing, that is, agreeing with God about our state, about our sin. And so we examine ourselves, we examine our motives. We even get our brothers and sisters involved in helping us to see ourselves as we really are and to see God as He is. We do this by studying His Word which the book of Hebrews says is sharper than any two-edged sword and powerful enough to discern or divide between the soul and spirit. The Word of God, both written and in the flesh, that is Jesus Christ, this is the primary interface through which our minds are renewed as we surrender to the revelation of God and obey what He says. Now even someone that is very limited in mental capacity, can do this. You see, it isn't about achieving a certain level of competence. It isn't about a certain level of mastery. Because that would, again, be all about us, would it not? I've finally got to where I need to be. I'm finally good enough. No, no. This is something... It is about being faithful in response to God, about trusting in Him. And I would have to tell you that some people who are mentally limited can do this far more easily than some of the rest of us. I'd have to tell you a story about Edward. Edward is a man I met in Los Angeles. You've probably heard about him before. Edward is a man who at one time was very smart, who lived a full life, a rich life, but then he, he was involved in a tragic accident and he suffered head, head injuries and his brain no longer works the way it did. His wife left him, he lost his job, he lives just a couple blocks from Skid Row. Edward is a simple man, but Edward is a man that loves God. Edward is a man that trusts. He knows that God is right. The first thing Edward wanted to do when he got into the car with me was to tell me what he had discovered in the Word of God that he was reading that day. Look, he said, look what I found. 
and there was joy on his face. And I discovered that he has beautiful handwriting and he writes vast portions of scripture in his notebook. And he memorizes it. Yeah, Edward, he can't tell you about soteriology. And he can't tell you about ecclesiology and eschatology. But he can tell you about God. And he can tell you that God is faithful and God is good. We need that kind of faith. That kind of trust. That kind of confidence. And through all of this, we must remember that it is the work of God in us. It is the work of God through us. And therefore, it says in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. There's coming a day. There's coming a day when the struggle of transformation will be complete. When the world will no longer threaten to conform us to its way of thinking. There's coming a day when we will finally see perfectly the Savior, the glorious face of Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when we will see. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you as your humble servants, recognizing that we are not worthy. There is nothing we have done that should cause you to look with favor on us. But you, you have chosen us before the foundation of the world. You have adopted us as sons and daughters of the King. And Lord, we are not worthy. But we want to respond to you in love and praise and adoration, in full surrender and obedience, in trusting, confident faith that you will continue the good work that you have begun. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here tonight, this evening, who does not yet have an unveiled face, that you would take off the veil, that they would turn to you, and that they would be transformed by the power, the marvelous, miraculous power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is your work, it is not ours. We give you all the praise, all the honor and the glory that is due your name. We pray in the blessed and glorious name of Jesus Christ, the one whom we long to see face to face. Amen.